Welcome to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. I am Adam Motenko. With me, as always, my twin brother, Josh Motenko. That's right. The only one that matters. Motenko number two here. Yes, number two. And our good friend, Mike Minkoff. The only Minkoff that matters on this podcast. How's it going, gentlemen? <laughs> All right. Today, we are recording this on Monday after a really disgusting loss to the New York Knicks and a pretty solid win against the Orlando Magic with a surprising 12 players available after three postponements against the Magic, the Bulls, and the Heat coming up are the 76ers. It's tough these days to know what a game is going to look like or whether it's going to be played because of COVID. Uh, guys, how are you feeling about this crazy season so far? Well, it sucks to have the games being postponed over and over again. Like, we're about to play Philadelphia, but their last game was postponed, so we don't know if that game's even going to happen on Wednesday. Uh, and we're not getting a whole lot of information, right? The league is pretty um, tight-lipped, as, as one would say. You know, they're not giving info. Like, there's just these health and safety protocols but you don't necessarily know if players have COVID or not. You know, would you agree with that? Like, if they had, if a player, if Tatum has COVID, would we know? Yeah, we, Tatum we know that tested he has positive. It. We, oh, didn't, I we didn't, know that. I didn't know he had a positive test. I thought he yeah, was yeah. out for a long. No, I mean, there there seems to be they're definitely not fully transparent, and I think that was collectively bargained. And and coaches clearly don't have full discretion to speak to the results of tests uh, with uh, specificity. Um, the players can indicate, you know, how many, or the teams can indicate how many players are in the health and safety protocols. Generally, it seems like some players, like through their agents and, you know, in turn through Woj or Shams or or the team directly, I guess, if given the green light, um, are are making it known when they're the ones that have tested positive. And there's some. Um, there are some teams where, you know, I think it was like. Philly, uh, Minnesota have had, you know, have come out and said they've got like multiple people that have tested positive at various points. Uh, but the Celtics, I think, as far as I can tell, Tatum's the only one that tested. Oh no, Tatum and, and Robert Williams, I think, both tested positive. I believe that's uh, it. right. And every yeah. and everybody else was in kind of the health and safety protocols, um, which just means, as I understand it, contact tracing. So they have to do kind of it. Um, additional testing regimen they have to stay away from you know going to self-isolation for a few days while doing that testing to make sure that they don't um uh should you know get get a positive test and once they've cleared whatever the the established period of time is i'm not i'm not quite sure what that is then they're cleared to resume team activities which is why Jalen and grant williams and tice uh were able to play against the magic so yeah, Javante you, Green too. I think it's about five to seven days if it's contact tracing, ten to fourteen if you've got if it's a positive COVID test. So even though they don't always say who is positive, if you're if you're doing a fourteen day quarantine, it's pretty safe to to say that that is because of a positive test. So we are getting some players possibly who are who are positive but are not being publicized. That's not oh for sure. Yeah. Okay. So that's yeah, that's the crazy part of this to me. Why, yeah, why mean, is that particularly crazy? Just the the inconsistency of, you know, some players are revealing it, some players are not. Why would you hide it in some cases and not others? And there's no guidelines or, or, or mandates in terms of, uh, you know, releasing that information. It's just, an, it's just interesting to me. So it's hard 
to anticipate, you know, what's going to happen based on whether a game is going to be played or not, you know? But, well, I mean, there there's very, there's very clear guidelines about, you know, that teams have to report when players are in the health and safety protocol. Um, what, what triggers that, you know, part, you know, being in that is, is not fully transparent and, and clearly the guidelines are such that teams are not allowed to disclose that at their own discretion. I don't think the, the league can regulate players from, you know, putting their personal health information out and making it publicly known. Um, I'm not, I'm not quite sure legally how they would enforce that. Uh, it, it seems like, a if anything, if nothing else, a, a messy place to go. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think kind of Adam circling all the way back to your initial question, what I'm, you know, uh, my reaction, it, it certainly took the wind out of the sails. Like, you know, I've been appreciative of the NBA um, kind of coming back and the, and the players coming back at this time of year or in the winter in a really tough winter when the virus is kind of raging out of control across the country. Uh, there's been obviously a lot of political upheaval um, and we're kind of, if you're living in somewhere where it's cold, uh, you're kind of stuck inside these days. So I've appreciated the NBA coming back. Um, it, it, it's been a nice distraction uh, in a way that it, it didn't quite feel for me in the summer. Um, but then having like half the team unavailable, more, literally more than half the team unavailable as a result of uh, COVID-related um, absences uh, took the wind out of the sails of that distraction quite a bit for me. Uh, it was, it was, you know, it was like, oh yeah, yep, <laughs> yep, yep, <laughs> can't escape this. Yeah, we are not, this is not the NBA bubble. This is a totally different story and it's looking similar to the way it does in a lot of other leagues um, where uh, games are being postponed. You don't have, you, players are getting sick. Uh, what's surprising to me is that I don't think a single player in the NBA has opted out of the season. Uh, there was a deadline for when they had to do that. Um, to my knowledge, not a single player did. Um, Brian Windhurst had some really interesting reporting about a week ago where he was saying that some teams have a majority of players who have tested positive over whether it was going back all the way to when the bubble or, or pre-bubble and that because typically that comes with immunity. Now, some apparently there have been a handful of players who have tested positive a second time, whether that means they got it or it was a false positive the first time uh, is unclear. But he was making the point that if you are betting on a, in a season like this, where, I mean, Josh, you, you like to say the best ability is availability. That is a huge issue that, uh, and, and a determinant of whether teams are going to have a, a positive regular season record or not, in my opinion. Um, if you knew that a team had the majority of its players, especially its stars, had immunity uh, to COVID because they've already had it, that's a huge advantage. And apparently there are teams that have rosters that look that way. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, thinking about the Celtics and uh, surprised if, if Tatum and um, Robert Williams were the only ones that got it recently, that is, that is fortunate for those other players. Well, yeah, and we know Marcus Smart had it very early in the p pandemic, though, uh, you know, and I'm far from an expert on, on transmissibility of the 
um, of the virus. Uh, my I recall seeing kind of a, a headline just the other day suggesting that a, a new study found that kind of that immunity might last about five months, mm-hmm. um, in which case someone that got it in March it doesn't really matter um, for the, for purposes of immunity. But also we saw with Kevin Durant on the Nets, uh, he had tested positive for COVID, I believe, last season um, uh, uh, while he was uh, in recovery uh, from his Achilles injury. And re- despite that, he was still forced away to, to stay away from the team uh, as part of the health and safety contact tracing protocols. Um, which I think makes sense because I, I think there's still a lot not known about, again, transmissibility of the virus, even for those that have had it previously. So, um, you know, Adam, even even if there are some teams where, you know, a majority have had the illness, that doesn't mean that they can't be forced out of action uh, as a result of close contact with somebody uh, that newly tests positive. And Adam, I, I think I texted you, you know, kind of a, on, on, on face value, it's kind of an ignorant comment, but, you know, there, I think that there's a point within it that, you know, if we can get, if players test positive now, the silver lining in that is that we get it out of the way now and, and hopefully they have immunity and that when playoffs come around, that's not an issue because as you said, you know, if, if your star goes down with COVID in the playoffs, that's a huge problem. You know, so the fact that Marcus Smart already had it, Tatum has it now, you know, to me, you know, from a coaching perspective where the most important thing is, is my team's success in the playoffs and things like that, you know, you're, even if Brad Stevens says the most important thing is the player's health, as a coach, you're just programmed to be thinking about the winning and the losing, to be thinking about your team's success, to be thinking about setting things up so that you're good when it matters in the playoffs or later in the season even if you're not that good right now. Um, so, you know, there's something to that, I think. You know, if we can get um, it out of the way now. I and, am... And you responded, Adam, with, you know, Josh, you don't understand the possible implications of, of the virus. And I assume you meant, you know, long-term lung health. And, and, you know, I know, I don't know if you guys have details, but I know Mo Bamba has taken a lot longer to recover than other young athletes from COVID. And so it's, it's obviously a touchy subject. And, and like I said, at face value, an ignorant comment that I made. But I'm kind of like, there's still, there's still some point to that. Well, so first of all, I am 100% certain that Brad Stevens legitimately is more concerned about the health of the players than the final win-loss tally at the end of the season. Agreed. <laughs> In sure. defense of Brad as, Stevens. As am I. Um, as am I. Going, and, then, and then right after that, you're, you're thinking about your team. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, second, yeah, I mean, I do, I do think, again, I, I think first of all, if someone's tested positive, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be held out of action later, as I, as I said before. And as you noted, Josh, uh, there are a lot of potential long-term effects that are just un, unknown or underknown, uh, whether that's lingering lung issues, whether that's heart issues, um, what is it, myocardiopathy? I think that's a word. Um, like, uh, I forget the name of the college, the college player who collapsed. Um, uh, in uh, maybe a Florida player, uh, but he, he collapsed um, he, with a heart issue. He had COVID. They don't know for sure whether it was linked um, 
but it it there is a known kind of there does seem to be a, a link generally with covid and and heart related issues in some in some small percentage of athletes i think you know there are a number of prominent nba players uh, that have been uh diagnosed with covid i think um, in addition to tatum carl anthony towns which is a whole other yeah level of tragedy given how he's lost seven family members to covid already um his mother and i believe grandmother um bradley beal i believe tested positive um and and at least a few other prominent nba players so you know uh, the nba adam as you noted no one's opted out everyone kind of went into this knowing there was risk entailed um, and still still decided to go forward. I think there's, you know, in some of the like national reporters and their podcasts that I listen to, whether that's Brian Windhorst or Zach Lowe or, or others, there's kind of seems to be an indication that for most players, and this isn't too surprising when you've got a bunch of, you know, um, elite athletes that are in their prominently in their 20s, 20s, kind of don't think it's that big a deal and aren't that worried about it generally. But, you know, it just takes one particularly prominent NBA player, but not necessarily a prominent star, um, having a really adverse interaction with the the illness. And that, you know, all of a sudden the story changes quite dramatically. Apparently James Harden, part of the reason that he was off clubbing before the uh, during the preseason um, was that he already had it and he was, wasn't was concerned about it. Um, obviously, you can still spread it even though you've already had it. Um, but it, it's another thing that I read was, was that part of the reason the NBA is not going to shut down, and I think a lesser reason, is that they feel like uh, there is a higher chance that players will get COVID because of their behavior if they are not playing games surrounded by the protocols that they have, which were just increased uh, within the last week. Uh, so it's actually safer, even though they're still traveling and out of a bubble, it's still safer, uh, the NBA thinks, for players to continue playing, even if games have to be postponed. Uh, but Josh, to your point, it sounds like we it, it is possible that the NBA could reach some sense of herd immunity because of the num- high numbers of players that, that are getting COVID by the time the playoffs roll around. Um, what we do know for sure is that we are seeing how the NBA is handling this. Uh, it's different this year. They are trying to get as many games in as possible. They're trying to make their money, not just for the owners, but for the players as well. This is agreed upon between the board of governors, the owners, and um, the uh, Players Association. And th- we will see what the second half schedule looks like uh, with the number of games that need to be replayed. But the goal is just get the games in, even if... You're playing with eight players, a depleted roster, even if stars are out, even if the quality of play is down, uh, we're just going to get these games in and, and try and make it through this season with an actual season. Uh, so, and, and speaking of quality of play down, shall we talk about our last couple of games? <laughs> oh, God, can we avoid the Knicks game? I mean, other than uh, than Kemba Walker's return and, and him looking pretty fresh and spry, uh, I don't really think there's much to talk about with that Knicks game. I'm, yeah, I'm I mean, that, that was a bad loss and I'm moving on. That That's my question is that I think that's every Celtics fan's inclination is to say, well, Kemba looked good considering the layoff he, he was certainly he certainly had his burst um we played 
you know, it was just a horrendous game. Is it is it enough to just say Kemba's healthy, he's back in the lineup, everything else is a wash, or is there anything of concern like worth pointing out in that game? I agree with you, Adam. For the like, I, I'm I'm of that mind of just like, yeah, we got Kemba back. Everything else was crud. Let's just chalk it off as a one-off. When you're eight and four, and the and like every third game looks like a disastrous preseason game not just for the Celtics, but for every single team in the NBA, I feel like it's kind of, to, all right, fine. We'll take another one of those. We're doing fine so far. Josh, do you have different thoughts on this? Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got some comments on that next game. I used to get killed in coaches meetings all the time after games like that, when I would say like, I, I don't want to watch this film. Like I, I want to not watch this film as a team as well. You know, if, if the next game is similar, that's the reason not to throw away this next game film you know, and, and still keep it around. Cause then maybe you'd want to watch some, something from it. If there's patterns that you're seeing in the next game, but it was like, everybody was so off and it was just the, the way we would fumble the ball. It was like, you know, that we, we were playing like, like it was an early game, but we were playing like it was a 7am start. And it was just kind of, to me, that's a throwaway game. It's not something that you watch right away. Um, and and I don't think there's a whole lot to learn from because everything was just so off, so much yeah. more off than a normal situation. It's just so abnormal, I, you know. And and there was always an old school coach in the room who would say, "No, we're watching this film. We're doing the edits. We're showing the players what they did wrong. We're doing our routine because that's what we do." And yeah, I'm with you guys. Like you, you don't want to watch this one. And, there, yeah, and there's I mean, two or three every year that you that you can say that about. Yeah, hopefully fewer, but yes, <laughs> at, least, at least a couple. Um, yeah, and to your point, Josh, on on the slot, it was crazy. Like, I don't know, between Tice and uh, and Jalen, uh, I felt like they just, just like the ball just slipped out of their hands like thirty five times. Um, but looking at the just the regular box score after the game, you know, uh, despite Kemba looking pretty Kemba-ish athletically, you know, he had five turnovers. He led the team in turnovers. The team as a whole, I think, had 17. Um, it felt like a lot more than that, actually. But um, I thought that was kind of, you know, it, it was basically just a practice. It was a glorified practice for Kemba is how I'm compartmentalizing it. It's just like he needed to get run. He had to get some of the yips out. He had to get, you know, you know, he, he, he was trying just to shake off the rust. It was a little sloppy. His sloppy play led other people to play a little bit uh, less carefully as well. Just kind of snowballed. And to their credit, the Nets, the Knicks uh, played really, really hard. Um, they're, they're an interesting team on, under Thibs, uh, but uh, not, not scared of them generally, but you know, kudos to them for being like semi-respectable after years of being totally putrid. He's shot 15% from three in that game, 29.8% from the field goal. Brown had a good game, but otherwise it was pretty gross. Uh, and Mike, you, you mentioned Kemba Walker. Uh, I've talked on this podcast a lot about my concerns about this knee injury. He looked really quick. He had his old burst back. He had a huge smile on his face. It was really, really nice to see. Uh, I expect that he'll be on a minutes restriction and not play back-to-backs for a little while and his ramp up will be hopefully somewhat slow, but um, it's, it is a very encouraging first sign from Kemba Walker. And, and I hope that I'm wrong about everything that I've said about my, my concerns with that injury. 
And how guys, much? Let me ask you guys: Have you guys been uh, keeping up on what's what the latest is on Kemba's? You know, the injury that he had in that game, which caused him to not come, not return in that game. I know. Uh, I think he just he just got like the wind knocked out of him. He just he just took like an elbow to the side of the ribs. Okay, that's um, all I think I think at most it was like there will be like a bruise, but no, not a, not a big deal. He was like back on the bench cheering everybody on before the game ended. And um, did you guys think that he should have taken eight threes in that game when he kept missing? It was that a like a, like I said, it was a glorified practice. <laughs> I think I think the entire script for the game retroactively was Kemba just do whatever you need to do to feel a little more comfortable as we go on. So eight threes is fine. You know, he, he made a lot of passes that were flashier than I think he needed to do. Um, like, and he turned the ball over five times. Uh, it's all fine. <laughs> it's all fine. Like I would cut his film and show it to him and be like, okay, okay. You were clearly excited. <laughs> this is, this is kind of good stuff here, but you know, let's tone it down as we get into the, into the groove of the season. But you know, I think for everybody else, you just throw it away. And one of the, I guess, results of the way this season is playing out with COVID and everything is that we have larger rosters. We have unsung players or, you know, maybe players who wouldn't be in the league otherwise uh, who are getting opportunities. And, you know, we saw Nikhil Alexander-Walker drop like 37 points the other day, you know, and, and guys are stepping up across the NBA because they're getting opportunities and playing time that they wouldn't have otherwise. And that's, I think that's one of the cool things to see, but I, I'm not sure if we're really seeing that from the Celtics right now. Tyrese well, Maxey on, on Philadelphia is yeah. another one, a guy I, I liked mean, at, the, at the Aaron Neesmith spot. I think Peyton Pritchard is doing that, Josh. Yeah, Aaron exactly. Aaron clearly is not. Well, uh, I don't Neesmith know. gets 18 minutes of run against the Magic. Uh, shoots two of seven, one for five from three. A lot of difficult plays. Uh, Mike, what, do you, what are your thoughts here on Neesmith? I know that you've done well, some. Uh, I, yeah, before, actually, can we? Can I ask you guys one last question on Kemba before we yeah. totally switch gears here? Um, so, you know, again, we're all, I think we're all feeling pretty pretty good about how Kemba looked given, given the circumstances. How much do you believe all of the talk from Stevens and Kemba about kind of, how careful the team was in in his rehab. The fact that Kemba's like truly pain free for the first time in a quote unquote very very long time, as Kemba was saying. Like, you know, this stuff. Uh, I I go I go both ways. Like, you know, the the green the green Kool Aid drinking fan, green shades wearing fan uh, wants to believe all of it and just soak it all up accept it at face value but then it also just feels like your regular training camp latitudes of the guy being in the best shape of his life and never looking faster or best he's felt since he was in college whatever the case may be so which where do you fall with this talk about Kemba Kemba's recovery I fall more on the concern side of things um I don't it sounds more like preseason fluff to me it's time will tell and and I mean this sounds like the kind of injury that uh continued use especially heavy use the kind you get when you're a an nba player in this type of a season that is the kind of thing that will simply um inflame the injury this is not it doesn't sound like this is something that really goes away it's something that will have to be managed and part of that is going to be related to usage so uh if he can get through this season even with a totally conservative um plan for for usage 
uh, if he can get through this season in the playoffs and 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 be good to go, then then uh, I'm I'm very happy with that. But and that that is what will prove to me otherwise. Yeah, he was cleared, had one practice, and then was thrown into the game and started. So that tells you right there. But he had another yeah. practice. It was the other night. It was the other day, yesterday, against yeah. the Knicks. And the next one will be against Philly. <laughs> That's right. Right. So that tells you all, all you need to know about whether there's enough evidence to show that their comments are actually accurate or not. You know, we haven't he, – he wasn't even practicing with the team. You know, like he wasn't doing any contact stuff. He was, so it's – I mean, not, not that the team is doing a whole lot of contact stuff right now with all the COVID protocols and things going on with that anyway. But so they really can't practice. Yeah, I know. So, so, but just to answer Mike's question, like you don't have evidence to prove that their comments are accurate. And so, and especially, no, yeah, after, that, so, especially after what's happened where he had four or five months off with COVID before the bubble and that didn't heal the knee, you know, that's the most worrisome part about it to me and, and why I wouldn't take uh, anything that they're saying too seriously about how great everything is and how yeah. rosy everything is. So I think, I think, I, I think we all agree that's probably more in the preseason fluff uh bucket and then the uh then the we can take this to the bank bucket but yeah and with, um, with Kemba missing a little bit of the beginning of the season I think Peyton Pritchard would have been in the rotation just like he has I don't think COVID's affected his minutes much it, I mean it's a little hard to say um I think you know I guess coming out of training camp everyone was um, really lauding his his play in the short training camp, but even then he would have probably gotten less opportunity if Kemba was healthy. So it, it's you know he if he didn't get as much opportunity in training camp, he may have been buried behind Teague a bit further. It would have been harder for him to show um, his potential. So who knows? Who knows? But he certainly he certainly made the most of it, though. I think the Knicks game was like one of the first games where he actually wasn't didn't look that stellar uh, this season. Um, Adam circling, with, oh, Mike. I, I agree with you that on on Pritchard, I, I there were like three or four consecutive plays against Orlando where Tristan Thompson got a rebound and then gave the outlet to Peyton Pritchard, even though Jeff Teague was also on the floor. And I feel like we're seeing the vets believe in Pritchard in a way that um, they wouldn't have if he hadn't had such a large opportunity because Kemba was out, uh, they're putting the ball in his hands on offense. And I certainly love to see that. So I think he would have been behind Teague getting less minutes. Um, and it seems like he may be ahead of Teague at this point. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, there's a difference between these guys who are four year guys who come out of college and they're physically ready and have had that kind of experience. You know, they're just ready to play now. And, and often we see those players look better than younger players or less developed players coming in as rookies. And then obviously things even out, you know, three, four, five years later. And those players who are more ready often have lower ceilings. Right. And I think that you could see that Peyton Pritchard, you know, he doesn't have the highest ceiling in the world because he doesn't have extra, you know, length or or quickness defensively or, you know, there he's his his limitations are always going to be there for him. So his ceiling's only so high. Whereas you've got a guy like Neesmith who, you know, Mike, I know you're really down on him and he just needs some time. So we need a lot of time. You know, we, can, me... we can all sit here and wish that we had Sadiq Bey or Desmond yep. Bain, like I've done many times rather than Neesmith. But this is the kind of thing that we're not going to be able to judge for another year or two. Yeah, well, I disagree. I'm going to judge him now. Um, 
And <laughs> I just I have a I have a trivia question for for you guys. Um, Adam, you kind of know the direction this is pointing, but but it's uh, new information since last time we discussed. And Josh, this is new for you. So you know you you know what player efficiency rating is, right? PER. It, it it's kind of a crude crude stat by John Hollinger to determine how basically how how efficient how effective a player is, especially focus on offense. Would you care to guess what Aaron Neesmith's uh, PER is so far this season? So we, you asked me this, Mike, before I guessed a six, which is bad. Yes, a set, you're right. So like 15 is like an average, a replacement level player, basically. 20-something is all-star level. Yeah. The best players get 30-something. Yeah, like like the all-time best is like 31, something like that by Jordan and Giannis and LeBron have been in that territory. Can you go negative with this stat? <laughs> It turns out you can, and we, and we find that out because of pay, uh, because of Neesmith. That is correct. I, had, I, I did not. PR. I did not know before I looked up Aaron Neesmith's number. So, would you care to guess? <laughs> oh man, uh, negative thirty-one. Negative Michael Jordan. <laughs> no, it's not quite that bad, <laughs> but it's closer than it should be. It's negative three point four one. Um, he looks every bit as bad as that number suggests um you know i i i do feel bad for him a bit he is clearly pressing uh and he's forcing it um he's rushing kind of everything literally everything he does he's rushing on offense and defense but when he has chances to shoot uh or really when he touches the ball he feels like he has you can see that he feels like he has to just go right up into a shot um he he's he's not kind of playing with any sort of rhythm. Uh, he actually, you know, made a couple of passes against the Magic that surprised me in a in a good way. Um, it showed he has some vision and kind of awareness of what's going on in the court that otherwise hasn't really seemed to be there. Um, defensively, he still seems lost. His shot isn't falling yet, uh, though he did have again against the Magic one shot one that just looked really really pure and you can see you can you you could see what it would or could look like if he kind of gets it together you know and i think a lot of it is kind of mental for him uh it, it's just he's just so lost um yeah i'm really i'm pretty low on him um i don't i don't really feel like there's a huge track record that i can think of of players that come in looking this out of sorts and lost i guess jalen brown did it actually um but looking this out of sorts and lost that then kind of all of a sudden put it together but jalen jalen looked pretty lost his rookie year um and and was able to develop so i don't know if if aaron neesmith is going to be able to do the same but he is you know even compared to romeo last year he just looks way way worse yeah, I actually went and, and did a deep dive into all the Romeo Lankford highlights I could find on the internet just to remind myself that we still have him coming back. Like watching some of his AAU stuff in high school. Sometimes I like with stars, sometimes I like to see, you know, the, what they do at lower levels when they're a star, you know, because obviously Romeo Lankford is not a star on our team. He doesn't have that any role, you know, remotely close to, to being a star or having the opportunities that a star would have and just the way that he's uh, adopted defense and after not being a defensive player and being, being a player who's seen as someone who floats during games, especially on defense, you know, and watching how he came out 
as a rookie, you know, I just had to, I had to remind myself that we still have him in, in the wings waiting and, and also to compare him to Neesmith a little bit. Um, because that's what we'll be doing when, you know, ne- at the beginning of next year, like let's give them both time to get back and, and have whatever happens this year. But for both of those guys, the beginning of the next year is when we're really going to be comparing them to each other. And then maybe hopefully another wing that we get in the draft, you know, because we want that to be uh, the most, I think, diverse and deep part of our team. Uh, I think, you know, that's a, that's kind of the main building block of the Danny Ainge teams recently is, is being super wing heavy and especially with big wings who can score in different ways. And Mike Neesmith, he's just lost. You know, he's just, uh, he has no rhythm and he hasn't really had any opportunity to get rhythm, you know? Yeah. That Knicks game could have been a game where, where Neesmith played a ton of minutes and he didn't. And so, you know, yeah, he's not ready and yeah, you can call him a bust, but he's not really getting opportunities. Even in the COVID season when, when you know, you got two-way players dropping 30 sometimes. But I think there's a reason for, I mean, what worries me about Neesmith, and I just think, you know, my my professional career is non-existent. Like, my collegiate basketball career was limited to intramural gym runs, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm not a professional basketball player. I don't have a lot that I can draw on, but I can draw on pickup games. And, you, you know, you just, I just think to, like, playing with people that don't have feel for the game, that are, like, athletic, they're great shooters, they, like if you get it to them in the right spot, like they can do something with it, but they just don't have court sense and court awareness. And I look at him and he's just, he takes atrocious angles on defense. He, again, he's just like rushing everything. He, he, he's trying, you can tell he's trying to do the right thing, but he doesn't really get what the right thing is. And, and that's what, that's what worries me about him. Um, because I think, like, especially for a wing, and you want you want someone that's versatile and switchable defensively, that can kind of play this interchangeable offensive style, that can put the ball in the court, move the ball, and obviously uh, hit outside shots uh, when they're open or, or with him, you're hoping even when he's covered. Um, you need feel. You need to just kind of understand the geometry of the game and how, how the defense is going to react or how the offense is trying trying to move the ball and i'm just you know he clearly needs a lot more development time this is not the best season for him to get that um i'm 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 not a hundred percent given up on him but i i do think it's really really worrisome i i so this is the attitude that celtics fans have had for a long time celtics fans are the most knowledgeable fans in the world that's why we named this podcast celtics pride Celtics fans know their stuff and they don't and, and when they see something they're going to speak up about it and that's what makes being a Boston sports fan I think so epic and and different from being a sports fan of any other culture uh, besides maybe a, a New York sports fan because I think they're equally as knowledgeable and and outspoken um, but this is also the same exact attitude that got Chauncey Billups rushed out of town you know, because he wasn't taking good angles defensively or he was all over the place or he wasn't picking things up as quickly, you know, and, and this is now we're talking about a Hall of Famer who is a legendary point guard and leader, you know, of, of championship teams. So, you know, 
we we rushed Joe Johnson and Chauncey Billups out of town for exactly these kinds of reasons because when they came in, people looked at them and said, "That's a bust." And I just want to caution you, Mike. Nobody said Joe Johnson was a bust. To be clear, first of all, everyone knew Joe Johnson is really good. They just and I, you know, whatever I was thirteen or something at the time, but I was all in on Rodney Rogers and Tony Delk for Joe Johnson. But you know, thirteen-year-olds should not make decisions on personnel for a professional uh, NBA franchise. Uh, <laughs> uh, Chauncey Billups, I actually genuinely don't remember um, what the impression was, but I feel like you shouldn't fault uh, Celtics fans for the sins of Rick Pitino. Um, that's that's a that's a dangerous dangerous road do you what is your level of concern on a scale of one to ten with neesmith like or or put a different way how confident are you right now you who said carson edwards was going to be a a good nba player a role player um, (laughs) uh how confident are you in aaron neesmith becoming like part of an eight or nine man rotation for a team that could go to the conference finals I think it's a really specific question. I'm not worried in any way about his career or his fit in the NBA. I think that he's going to be fine. I think how good he, you know, it's hard to tell how good he's going to be. He's shooting 28% from three right now, right? So any of these stats that you bring up, they're not going to look good because he hasn't played well. He hasn't had any rhythm, hadn't had any playing time to play through mistakes, you know? So I'm not worried about him at all. It just, yeah, it sucks that we can't put him in there right now. Yeah, I'd rather have someone who could play right now because we need someone right now. You know, but two years from now, I'm I'm not worried about whether Aaron Neesmith is going to be a good NBA player or not. I'm, I think some draft picks, you see that they have a transitional talent that, that goes from college to the NBA. Neesmith has that, and it happens to be like the most important skill that you could have as a basketball player, three-point shooting. And this is a, a, a league that right now is going through a big transition where the older guard is is leaving. You know, LeBron will be leaving this game in a few years. And, and KD and all these other guys who are 34, 35, 36, they're all transitioning the league to way, way younger stars. It's like the stars of this league are like 21, 22, Doncic and Tatum and guys like that, Zion. So this league is, is, is yet, yeah, it's, it's the... You know, it's getting younger, but it's the stars are even younger than before, and the stars are rising earlier. And so it's just a younger league. And with a younger league, you're going to have players who, you know, when they hit 26, 27 and they're in their prime, they're like very, very good NBA players, but maybe they weren't ready as a rookie. You know, I just think it's, it's the wrong attitude to have for, for a rookie. Like some of these guys need more time. Like that's, that's just me. Let me jump in. Yeah, okay. I, I watched I, this Orlando game, and I rewatched every single one of Aaron Neesmith's possessions, especially the ones where he had responsibilities. Some of them I watched two or three times. To me, he actually looked slightly better on D, and it looked like he's learning a little bit. Like he's not completely lost now, just fairly lost. And it just looks like he's got 16 things going on in his head in every moment, especially on defense. He's watching out for his responsibilities, and he's constantly a step behind mentally. And I, I'm not shocked by that. Uh, I, he's, as a rookie, that is not an uncommon thing to happen. Um, assuming he progresses past this point in a month or two, he should look different. Um, if he is still behind on switches 
and knowing his, his his switching responsibilities on D in a month, assuming he gets a little action every now and then, that's a problem. Um, he's got other players right now directing him, both on offense and defense, in terms of where he's supposed to go. Um, once he gets comfortable with his responsibilities and things slow down, they should slow down significantly for him on defense. Um, where he's he knows which the switch that's coming, he knows the screens that's coming. He's fighting harder through those screens, anticipating them. He's able to box out more. He's able to foul less simply because everything else is moving much slower. Mike, you talked about uh, playing in the you know just open runs in the gym when you're when you're playing with players that you are better than. It's a lot easier to know what's happening and to control to feel in control of the pace of the game and what's ha- like dictating where other people are and, and how things go on offense. When you're playing with a, players who are a lot better for you than you, it's, it, it can, the speed of the game can move really fast and it can it kind of put blinders on. And that's clearly what's going on for him, whether that means that he's just, he's not going to catch up or not. I'm not so sure. My concern and and in that Orlando game, he had a couple. He had a solid deflection. He came in to block an Aaron Gordon layup after a foul, which could have could have counted. There were a couple nice things that happened. Uh, I wouldn't call them flashes, but uh, uh, I, I did see some improvement. My concern is that he's missing shots um, and a lot of shots. And and you know, I'm watching that game, going, okay, this is supposedly the the best shooter in the draft. I don't think so. And, and the reason for that, to Josh's point about rhythm, I don't want him to start questioning his shot and sort of adding new things for him to be feel like he needs to work on or worry about. Um, I, I'm concerned that he's he's got some of, uh, I want to say the yips. Like, I'm concerned that he's overthinking, that everything, because, because it's all so fast, that everything is something he's overthinking about, including his shot. And I really hope that he finds some rhythm to that shot, starts seeing some of them go down, because the last thing this guy needs is, start, is to start questioning his shot, which is supposed to be the thing that works for him. So based on what you're seeing, you know, you're seeing him having 16 things in his head you know, and overthinking. So based on that, doesn't isn't that doesn't that tell you all you need to know about the fact that this is too early to make a judgment call on the player? No, and let me tell you why. Because, so, you know, I I work I've worked at a company for nine years and hired a lot of people. Uh, um, here we go. Okay, what, Josh? Well, I, I just I'm not sure how your experience with your company is going to relate to Aaron Neesmith's experience with the Celtics. But go ahead, let us know. Well, keep interrupting me, and and then uh, <laughs> okay. then you'll never hear. Um, so when you when you hire people, when you bring people on into a role, and you're you 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 have levels of institutional knowledge, right? You have you have processes, you have systems, you have ways that you do things. And obviously NBA teams have ways that they do things, right, Josh? Does this make sense yet? Um, so if you don't hire someone with the right core skill set and intellectually, kind of the, the cognitive ability to kind of understand at, at the level that you need at a baseline, then they're not going to be able to grow into the type of person that you ultimately want them to be, the type of professional that you ultimately want them to be. Aaron Neesmith at this stage doesn't 
he looks like he doesn't kind of have that overall capacity to get the big picture. And again, Carson Edwards felt the same way to me. And you were saying the same stuff last year, Josh, and Carson Edwards is not an NBA player. <laughs> um, I think I think there are certain things that, like, there's certain elements of feel, there's certain elements of knowing how the pieces fit together, how the systems work, the interoperability of, of the different players on the court, um, that is very, very, very difficult to teach. And we've seen rookies that we played again. Again, you talked about Sadiq Bey. You talked about Bain. I think they both have that. Um, Peyton Pritchard obviously has that. And yes, Peyton Pritchard played four years. He's only one year older than Neesmith. So it does worry me. And I do th- I do think it's appropriate to be worried at this point in time. And, and, and when you have these, again, in my experience in professional settings, when you have these kind of early signals, they're often pretty reliable markers. Like I totally disagree. That I think you, you've got examples every single draft class of players who their rookie year look completely lost. Darius Baisley last year. Um, I mean, and, and this year he's looking way better. You know, and just in terms of understanding concepts, in terms of being in the right spot, defensive rotations, the whole deal, comfort on offense. I mean. Talon Horton Tucker, another example, looked totally lost last year. And he was a guy that I liked out of the draft. And now everybody's talking about how great he could potentially be because it takes rookies a year most of the time, unless they're guys who are four-year guys like Sadiq Bey, like, you know, or three or four-year guys like Peyton Pritchard, like all these guys, Desmond Bain, those are all guys who have the experience to, you know, Grant Williams, another one to come in and be effective right away and to understand the interoperability. Whereas guys who either are younger or, you know, haven't picked that up yet, like Baisley, you know, they're, they just need time and then they get it. So I, I, I'm not seeing the connection between, you know, hiring somebody with certain skills and NBA players who develop at different rates. Mike, how much stock do you put in the fact that there was no training camp this year or summer league or the, the normal things that, um, Neesmith would have gone through to pick up some of these, th- the the Celtic system. Um, it obviously matters. I mean, it obviously affects his development. It's a it's a bad year. It's a bad year to have developmental players. Period. Like for a team. Like, and you know, I think frankly that should have gone into the Celtics draft calculus. It, you know, he's not going to have practice time. He's not going to have opportunity because, you know, the reality is we're somehow eight and four, despite not having uh, Kemba to this point and Tatum missing the last couple of games. And I think he's going to miss one or two more. Um, Let me ask you this. Mike. You know, we're, we're going for a championship and I, I don't think Neesmith is going to be playing very much at all over the course of the season. Okay. Um, and we're not going to be practicing. So, like, he, yeah, he needs reps, but he's not going to get it. So, if if you're Danny Ainge, do you think do you think you're upset that you didn't pick one of these other players? I would say maybe, right? Yes. But if you're Danny Ainge, <laughs> do you think that that you you wasted that pick and that pick is now trash and he's never going to develop? Like, do you think Danny's thinking that? I he don't think be. so. 
he might he might say I made a bad pick and you know we'll we'll maximize this asset as much as we can and and look to kind of make our team better in whatever form that takes. I've hired people where it's like, oh, yep, that was a mistake. That was not the right person, and I knew that within six months. Is this a potential bet? But you, it's not like you quit. It's not like you quit on the person. You still do your best to to get the most out of that person and for that person to help your organization as much as you can. But you can know, <laughs> you can know it wasn't the right choice. Is this a potential bet here? Like that. I don't know what the bet is because every time I try to bet with Josh on like <laughs> what a, a good player will be, he can't come up with specific terms. But I'm happy to talk about that offline, yeah. Josh, if you want. <laughs> I have no idea if this is a bet. Right. I, I, I think that the, <laughs> the people who've been around basketball for a long time have seen players develop at different rates mm-hmm. and have seen you know, that it takes time for some. And that doesn't mean it's a bad pick necessarily. It doesn't mean it's a bust necessarily. I agree. I agree. People can develop at different rates. I think Aaron Neesmith is probably a bad pick. I, I, I don't think it's universal, but from what I've seen from Aaron Neesmith, I'm not, I'm not impressed. Time will tell whether this is a James Young situation or a Jalen Brown one. Uh, let's talk about the upcoming games here. We got two games coming up against Philly. Uh, the, the, their last game got postponed, so we'll see what happens with that. I mean, it's almost like, do we even talk about the games? Do we even know who's going to be playing? Can we even talk about matchups? What do we yeah. see? I mean, I think I think that we can talk about Philly and what we've seen from them this year. You know, everybody and their mom is talking about how Joel Embiid looks different and he's playing out of his mind. To be honest, I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing the same Joel Embiid. I don't know what they're seeing that I'm not, but like just watching him cut to the rim when he's open and and like banana cutting. And so now he's receiving the ball and he's under the backboard and has to make a more difficult move instead of just going cutting in a straight line, just basic kind of things like that because he's, he's just not the most mobile guy or the most efficient mover. I just, he's the same guy to me. And, and, I think that we can we can see that maybe the, this team will play with a little bit more enthusiasm after Ben Simmons was not traded, um, and and so there's maybe some safety there within the roster and and more cohesion potential. So I, I do think that there's potential for this to be a better Philly team than last year's team. But I mean, do you guys remember thinking that Philly was going to be dominant at the beginning of last year and it kind of taking most of the season to realize that they weren't? And I, I'm wondering if we're having a repeat of that again this year with with a new coach and a new roster. Last year was, I mean, the, the Al Horford factor. Of course, okay. I thought they were going to be good. Of course, I'm still shocked they weren't. I, this year is just so weird. It's so hard to to say what the cause for things are, is. I mean, Steph Curry, or Steph, sorry, not Steph, Seth Curry, is an insanely good shooter um he uh, well on catch and shoot i just saw this someone posted it on twitter i think his effective field goal percentage on catch and shoot is like 96 percent like he he's basically shooting 66 percent on three pointers on catch and shoot threes so it basically, if he gets a catch and shoot three point shot, it's worth two points for the, for Philly. That type of floor spacing is invaluable when you've got guys like Simmons and Embiid. 
Um, and it, it's probably, I'm fairly certain, it's at a level even better than what Redick was giving them uh, when he was on their team. So, you know, making that that switch from like Horford, who I did think was going to be a better fit for them um, than he proved to be. But swapping out Horford and bringing in Danny Green and, and Seth Curry, you know, I, I think Philly's got um, loads of potential. Maybe it's, it's, you know, buying the same bad stock that I and others bought last year about their potential. But yeah, I, I think they're legit. Embiid's looking great. Um, Simmons is, is uh, flawed, but still uh, excellent player. And, you know, we, we were lucky not to have to deal with him in the playoffs last year. Um, and they were clearly an inferior team when, when Simmons was out. They're a much, much more difficult team to deal with with a healthy Simmons and now with additional shooting. Mike, are you allowed to have positive uh, comments about late bloomers like Seth Curry after your statement on Neesmith? Shots fired. Um, I okay. am. I am. I make the rules, okay. Josh. I, I just have to come up with a, an entire list of NBA late bloomers for you. That's just It just means hours of work yeah. for me, that's all. Yeah, if you if you do that and give me the tape of what they look like as rookies, I'll I'll let you know if I'm surprised or not by by that late development. And then and then you can revisit your your audio of uh, talking about Carson Edwards' future in the NBA. <laughs> All I said was he was going to be a, a good role player. He was going to be a decent shooter eventually. Yeah, isn't that bad? Isn't that and, bad and, enough? <laughs> and we we both questioned whether that was going to be with the Celtics or not. You know, uh, understanding that it might not. But, you know, long-term, as a role player, I, I think he's going to be all right. You still think Carson Edwards is going to be okay? For another team, yeah. I want to get him oh, wow. I want to get him out of Boston as soon as possible and use that roster spot. Um, but I think on a bad – I think he's the perfect kind of a player who needs three years to develop on a terrible team where he can just get a bunch of minutes. Like, you put him on the Bulls, a good- I think that he'd, he'd be great for the Bulls. You put him – yeah, he just needs a bad situation. What does, what does it mean to be great for a bad team? Like, are you a real NBA player? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, there's players who don't get it, who thrive in unstructured situations that are not as good for their development. You know, it's better for them to have to fit into a role, be coached, take the coaching, you know, from a good coach who's consistently there year after year. Um, and it's unfortunate for good players when they're in bad situations like that. But I think for players like Carson Edwards, I mean, he just needs a ton of minutes to get a bunch of rhythm and not be pulled out for defensive mistakes. Like, that's what he needs for three years in a row in order to reach his potential as an NBA player. It, you know, based on what I've seen, he's just, he plays too much. He's a little too too silly. Um, Mike, can you imagine watching that? Three years of Carson Edwards working out the kinks. No. Like, if you're a Nick, if just you're the like... Knicks, you wouldn't take Carson Edwards right now, a team that needs shooting? Absolutely not. Honestly, after the team I just watched, the no, he would like he would be. Well, yeah, not, they were good not defensively. Tibbs, yeah, Thibodeau wouldn't play him, but no, like I, I think if your argument is a player could become an NBA player if they just had an infinite leash to make all their mistakes, um, that that doesn't work for me. Like the whole, the, the, my whole argument with Neesmith is predicated on the fact that the Celtics aren't a, a scrap, you know, a, a scrub team They're you know, they're trying to replicate what the Spurs had as far as having like real institutional knowledge and real established ways of doing things and like deep playbooks and, and kind of players that can read and react and, and operate in a nuanced way, which means you don't get to 
you know, if, if you're going to come into this system, you have to really be able to operate cognitively at a really high level. And that, yes, you, you I mean, Neesmith should be a little lost, presumably as a rookie, but again, I don't know, Pritchard was able to come in and not be lost at all. Um, and that juxtaposition doesn't make him look good. And, and again, precedent of like Avery Bradley didn't look like that. I'm just, I, I just can't think of a lot of rookies that have come in and look as lost as Neesmith does on the Celtics and turned out to have kind of positive careers with the possible exception of Jalen. Yeah, it's, it's in, rare. In, in like the last 10 to 15 it's years. It's rare. Like, so that's what worries me. Uh, I, you know, there are plenty of people that obviously look worse as rookies and get better over time. That's very normal. And I don't, but it, it's just the way the lack of feel worries me a lot. All right, Mike, can you talk nerdy to me and to our audience? I'm going to talk nerdy to both of you. Um, there's there's a situation going on with the Celtics uh, rotations. It's not a big secret. This too big lineup. It's it's been it's been uh, an affront to all of our view, viewing eyes. Um, and I've got some data to back this up. So Thompson and Tice, Tristan Thompson and Daniel Tice, uh, as a two-man unit, they've played 103 minutes together. In those 103 minutes, this is over the course of the full season, the Celtics have a net rating of negative 17.3. That's not good. <laughs> That's very bad. Uh, and oppo- opponents are shooting an effective field goal percentage of 63.2%. So allegedly, this would be a good defensive lineup. It's definitely not a good offensive lineup because there's not good spacing. Because neither Thompson, much to my my chagrin, uh, because I'm clearly going to lose that bet. Uh, bet? Thompson bet? shooting 53 this hey. season. Thompson, I, I thought Thompson was going to shoot 53s this year. He has not taken one yet. I'm looking foolish. Um, yeah. So. They're they're just atrocious. Um, the five man unit of Tristan Thompson, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Daniel Tice has a net rating of negative thirteen point two um, over. I think it was eighty four minutes so far this season, and their opponents are shooting an effective field goal percentage of sixty two point two percent. In the last five games, the two man pairing of Thompson and Tice has actually been worse. It's gotten worse. Negative uh, 26.4 in 26 minutes. I mean, super small sample size. But, you know, Brad Stevens has been saying, well, we're, we're going to keep, we're keeping, we're running that out there because we, we're going to need it at some point this season. And my, the, the point of these numbers from my perspective is no, false. <laughs> There's never a situation where, our best course of action is trying to match what the other team is doing by playing this lineup. We have to try to impose whatever our preferred style is on that team and hope that we can get an advantage by playing the lineups that we play best because this ain't it. This is a terrible pairing that is not effective offensively, not nearly versatile enough defensively, and the numbers are bearing it out. And we really need to stop ever putting Thompson and Tice together. And I think it's a bigger question because Tristan Thompson has been 
less impressive. We just we talked about this on the last podcast. Less impressive than I thought he was going to be for us. Um, Tice has been abysmal this season in the advanced numbers, and I, I I don't think it's fair to Tice because he's mostly been or he's been playing out of position as a four a lot, and he's just not good there. Um, and we've been bad there. Uh, Robert Williams has been uh, from like the advanced numbers. Uh, we've played really well with Robert Williams on the court. I think this is the bigger issue here is that we probably need to move on from Daniel Tice and and get him get him out and get like a more versatile kind of four in into our rotation. Someone like a Harrison Barnes. Um, and I love I really like Tice. I just don't think there's enough minutes for Thompson, Williams, and Tice, at least in, when you get to the playoffs. And I don't think the like two of these bigs should be sharing the court ever. I, I think we're terrible and I think it affects um, our play within games. And I think it might affect our ceiling as a team to run out lineups this bad on a consistent basis. Yeah. This is, this is an example of, you know, a college coach caring about trust in his players, you know, but he's now at in year eight in the, in the NBA and he's still, you know, in the mentality of, I got no Kemba Walker to start the season, no Romeo Lankford to start the season, guys that I trust defensively, and I got all these rookies. So you know what I'm going to do is I'm not going to play the rookies to start the games. I'm going to play players that I trust to be in the right places and to do what I want them to do. And that just happens to be you know, Tristan Thompson and Daniel Tice at the same time. I don't think that Brad Stevens thinks that those guys are actually going to be able to guard the perimeter or the three-point line at a high level. I think he's just going with his gut and who he trusts to create continuity and expectations in younger players, you know, as a, as a culture setting uh, dynamic. So, and, and, and then as far as like your comments, Mike, about, you know, Thompson's not what you thought he was going to be. Well, great. Even more reason to play him 20 minutes a game as well as Tice and, and, that leaves enough playing time for all three guys, in my opinion, depending on matchups. But Tice is like the one guy out of those three that I don't want to let go. If we can re-sign him because his contract is up at the end of this year for, for something re- really reasonable, I think that he's really worth keeping because of all the things that he does. I think that of those three guys, he does defend the perimeter you know, better than, than Tyson Williams, than uh, Thompson and Williams. I think Tice is the best at, at that. He's finally getting really good at making passes out of the the catch and the short roll, and you know finding shooters. And I, I just feel like the things that he adds to this team at his contract, it's like why would you want to get rid of that guy? I don't get that. I don't want. I I really like Tice. I I think I guess I would I singled him out because a I think he has the most trade value. Um, I I think it's least likely that we would trade Thompson just after signing him. Um, I am intrigued by Time Lord still. Yeah, I think Time Lord's shown a lot of good stuff this season. And if I were if I were forced to pick one or the other to kind of go with this season and beyond, I would I would still lean Time Lord, even though Tice is obviously to me kind of a, a more certainly a more reliable player at this point in time. I mean, I think the model that that the team has personnel wise for the five spot for the center position is is a good one right now. You got. All these guys under really good, reasonable contracts. They're all good players who, who bring different things to the table. And you know, you're not spending thirty million on on one player. 
uh, you know. Yeah, if they're if they're all willing, if like the locker room stays happy, and they're splitting forty eight minutes per game, like they're literally only operating at the five, those three, and not spending any minutes anywhere else. And that might be like two of them play 20 minutes in one game and the other plays eight. It might be they all play 16. It might be one plays 30 and the other split the other time. Like, and that keeps everyone happy. I'd love to have all three of them because I agree. They bring, they're slightly different. They give us uh, versatility in different matchups, but like we're just better when we're smaller. We're better on defense and offense. Um, we're quicker, we're, we're harder to cover, we're, um more aggressive defensively and offensively um like it's it doesn't make any sense to me still but like Shemi Ojale and Jeff Teague are among our best uh plus minus players on the team and I think that's just because we're playing we're not playing with two bigs and like people like Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown, their advanced numbers aren't looking that good and I think that's because they're spending a lot of time in that starting unit unit which is been really bad let me ask you this about advanced numbers you know i'm looking at at some at shooting numbers shooting percentage numbers knowing that it's too small of a sample size to get a good read you know and and that's that's just something that i look at all the time is you know which i think is really important is three-point shooting percentage but sample size does impact these percentages and does impact you know most numbers that i know about do you feel like at all the advanced numbers that you look at are impacted by sample size being too small. No, of course, of course it is. I mean, there's only been so many minutes, but the as with any stat, like whether it's shooting percentage or advanced numbers, you know, the the question, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is like, does this seem to map to or run counter to kind of the eye test, and like what what my you know gut is telling me or what my experience as a fan and watching the Celtics. Is, would tell me. And in this case, it fully reinforces what my experience watching, you know, the Thompson Tice pairing is telling me, which is that it's ineffective. It does not work. Like our defense looks terrible. People get into the lane at will because they, we don't control the perimeter as effectively. And, and then when we get stretched out, you know, I think I saw the number was um, opponents are shooting like 43% from three against that lineup. Um, we just can't cover the court with those two guys on with those two guys sharing the floor defensively, and we're not dynamic offensively. You know, Tatum and and uh, Brown don't have as much space to operate. Um, it's also you know, it would it will I will say it, it could be interesting to see if or how much that pairing um, is affected by playing. You know, if it's like Kemba, Jalen, and Tatum with those two instead of smart that could be very different because Kemba is so much quicker than smart and smart can't really get into the teeth of the defense the same way um but it it, that still won't help on the defensive end it it could just improve the offense because having those two guys on the court to set screens for Kemba and if he gets back to his kind of lethal threes off the pick and roll um then at least offensively that could be very effective but I just don't, it, you know, so the short answer, Josh, now that I've gone long (laughs) is, is to say, yes, obviously small samples influence it. But in this case, I just, I feel like the data is backing up what I'm seeing. The only thing that I would add to all of this is that injuries 
and and time out is going to be a larger issue this year. So the fact that we have three centers that we would like to be playing at that one position, I think it's going to work itself out because you know, what we know about Tice and Robert Williams, they get injured. So I'll end today's pod with a question for you guys. After Tatum, Brown, Smart, and Kemba Walker, who shoots the most threes on the team? Who should or who is? Who is shooting the most threes? Pritchard. Yeah, Peyton Pritchard, baby. It or Shemi. Shemi or Pritchard. Uh, 3.5 threes per game. He's actually shooting, respectably, 35.9, 36%, right? Which is league average, 36%. Wasn't he 42 like before a game or two ago? Yeah, like a couple minutes ago, he was shooting yeah. 42%, and now he's dropped down <laughs> to 36. So how do you feel about, uh, you know, right now, how do you all feel about Shemi Ojale? shooting the fourth most threes or fifth most threes on our team. Well, I think I tweeted during the, um, during the magic game that if Shemi Ojale is now like a legitimate NBA player, we're not allowed to complain about Brad Stevens as a coach anymore. Um, I, I don't know. I stand, stand by that. I, it, the verdict is uh, still out, but Shemi has looked like an actual NBA player this year for the first time in his, what, this is his fourth year. Um, and the difference is that shot. He, he, he's he's drawing people out, and that, and that, the difference that has is, opened up his ability to. I say ability, his ability to drive. It's because he's got the opportunity that opportunity to drive. Yeah, he's got he worked he did work on like the his euro step in the off season, and it's still not that effective. No, it's not, but it, it's better, which is a low low bar that he had to clear. But it, it's definitely. He's he's a little bit more agile and fluid, uh, you know, putting the ball on the on the floor. Um, Anybody know his three point yeah. shooting from above the break as opposed to in the corners? Because he needs to stay in those corners and shoot those shots. I don't know, but again, I, I don't. As know I either. tried to state earlier, you know, it's still too early. We haven't even hit twenty games on the season, so none of these numbers really matter too much. Um, yeah, but uh, I'm with Josh on that one. The, the number that matters the most right now is the health and safety protocol numbers. Hopefully, there's been you know enough time from when Philadelphia's last game was canceled until Wednesday when the Celtics are supposed to play them. We wish them good health so that we can actually get some games in here. Um, and 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 it will be interesting to see two games back to back against you know what I would consider to be one of our biggest rivals, the Philadelphia 76ers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please rate, review, subscribe, tweet at us, and follow at Celtics Pride Pod. We will be talking about it.